Thanks for joining us today. We're talking to Professor Ramon Grossvogel from the University of California, Berkeley, regarding key facets of his theory, which have been quite revolutionary in the understanding of many scholars uh, previously uh, being understood as post-colonial scholars and post-colonial studies, but now we're talking about decolonial studies and a transformation in the way of thinking about knowledge production, world systems. And today, Specifically, we're going to be talking about genocide as part of the Genocide Memorial Day project. Professor Grossfogel, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I wanted to start, if you could maybe just uh, explain a little bit more about yourself and your background and your work, and then maybe take us on a journey through your ideas about the four genocide slash epistemicides. Uh, my name is Ramon Grossfogel, as you said, I'm a professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, I've been working on these questions for now a, a long time, you know, like 25, 30 years now. Um, I've been uh, basically focused on what is known today as decolonial theory or decolonial perspective. Um, I was a professor at uh, SUNY Binghamton where the World System School was based and years ago and I got the, in a sense the knowledge of a global political economy there and so my work have been focused fundamentally on decolonizing knowledge as well as decolonizing paradigms of political economy. In your work you talk about the four genocide slash epistemicides that underpin modernity. Could you elaborate a little bit about what they are and then we can move on to talking about how they relate to what we understand as the modern world? Yeah, this is uh, very important because I I was wondering why is it that in the epistemic structures of the westernized universities, and when I say westernized, I'm not talking about the West only, I'm talking about westernized at a worse scale because the Western National University is everywhere today. It's not anymore something of the West, but as part of the colonial expansion of Europe, now today you have Western National Universities everywhere. It's part of the global structures of the world system to produce Eurocentric knowledge and to produce the Westernized elites in the third world that are going to be a kind of the subalternate or the intermediaries uh, between the West and the rest. So they will be working for the West now in third world countries. So uh, this, I, I was wondering why is it that the structures of knowledge on the modern world are based on white men of five countries. When you go to any universe, westernized university and you go to a classroom, it doesn't matter if you are in New York, if you are in London, you're in Paris, or you are in Dakar, Rio de Janeiro, New Delhi, or in Beijing, you're going to read a white man of five countries. You're going to read a French, a German, a British, an American, and secondarily an Italian. And I was, you know, shocked by, by, you know, uh, uh, the first time I heard that, and the, the first, the first person who said that that I heard saying that was Boaventura Sousa Santos, who happened to be a sociologist from Portugal. And I was like, wow, is, is this 
I mean, I was thinking about it. I mean, is this true or not? What's going on? So finally, I, I started doing research about this. And, it, 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 you know, it was exactly how, what he said. I, any discipline you go, the names change. But the nationalities, the racial origin, the gender origin are the same. There are white men of five countries, you know, from, West, from you know. And so they are, uh, in, in anthropology, you will find some names, in sociology, different names. In philosophy, different name, but they are coming from these five countries, and they're always white men, white women. Not, it's not even included. Not to talk about the rest of the world. So, uh, I start trying to find out where is this coming from? Why? Why we have that? Because it's not natural. One plausible answer is the racist typical answer. Oh, because they are genetically superior, and therefore they have higher IQ levels, and therefore that's why they have this privilege. Uh, and that's why they monopolize knowledge production in Westernized universities at a world scale. That's a, the racist answer. Another racist answer is to say, well, the West have a superior culture. And therefore, because they have a superior culture, then it's, it's natural that white men of these five countries are the ones monopolizing the legitimation of knowledge at the world scale. But then if you, if you move away from this kind of... Uh, uh, positions, racist positions, cultural racism or biological racism, it forces you to make a different question. Part of the coloniality is, has to do with the questions you raise. Uh, because in the questions, it's already embedded there if you have, you know, a colonial or a decolonial position. So instead of asking why white men have superior knowledge, you see, I I turn the question in a different way because you say white white man has superior knowledge. You're already assuming that they have superior knowledge. You see, and instead of uh, raising a different question, the question for me will be because that that kind of question will be racist already. If I say white man, why they have superior knowledge? So, uh, so I raise a different question. My question was then, when, how, and uh, you know uh, where. Did this happen? Because it's not natural. This is recent history. This it was not like this, uh, five hundred years ago, six hundred years, one thousand years ago. It's something recent in history that white men of five countries monopolize legitimation of knowledge at a world scale. So, uh, so I start doing the, that kind of question: why, when, and how this happened is already a war historical question. So it forced me to go back in history to try to find out where is this coming from. And doing this uh, research is when I found that there are four genocides, epistemicides, that are at the center of the privilege of knowledge of the white man in the modern world. And, uh, and this is also linked with the question of modernity. Modernity, people conceive it as some kind of emancipatory project in, in decolonial perspective, we see it as a civilization of death. So usually you think of genocide as something exceptional to modernity, but in fact, it's constitutive of modernity and it's constitutive of the privilege of white men over knowledge structures in the modern world. So I found four genocide epistemicides that are constitutive of this. The first one was the conquest of Al-Andalus and there, the conquest of Al-Andalus in the uh, 15th century, 
and see uh, you have the Spanish uh, Christian monarchy expanding to the south of what we call today Spain, but at that time that part of the world was called Al-Andalus, was part of Islamic civilization. And in that expansion, they went after the, the people, that is genocide, ethnic cleansing of the territory, that is, they were killing everybody who was Muslim of you and were not willing to convert okay, to Christianity. So it was Christianized or I kill you, you know, and uh, those who converted survived, but they survived as some kind of a, a inferior race inside the structure, okay? Uh, but many people resisted, so many people escaped to Northern Africa, uh, Muslim lands, Jews and Muslims, and uh, those who, who stay there were basically uh, exploited as a kind of cheap labor force, inferior uh, labor force, etc. You know, so, and the other thing they did was to burn the libraries. So in the burning of the libraries is a, is a way of destroying their knowledge structure and knowledge production and inferiorizing them relative to the hegemonic narratives of the West. In this guy, in, at that moment, the Christian narrative of history and so on, you know. So uh, they were basically uh, practicing what I call genocide epistemicide. Genocide, ethnic cleansing of people, killing people, and uh, epistemicide, the destruction of the knowledge structures. Uh, the second one is the expansion to the Americas, European colonial expansion to the Americas, where you have uh, the same thing they did in Al-Andalus, they did it with indigenous civilizations in the Americas. They destroyed they took those who survived and put them as a cheap labor force, enslaved them, and super exploit them as an inferior race. And then uh, they burned their libraries. Uh, Inca civilization, Aztec civilization, all these great civilizations of indigenous people in the Americas were quite advanced technologically, scientifically, philosophically, compared to what Europe was at the time. But they destroyed and uh, burn their libraries. That's what I call epistemicide. And and then there is a third one, third genocide, epistemicide, uh, which is the uh, conquest of Africa and the mass kidnapping of Africans uh, to be transported by force to the Americas in order to be enslaved in the Americas. And there you have another genocide, epistemicide, where they destroy also African civilization, uh, African people, and they forbid Africans from practicing their spirituality and knowledge in the Americas. So there was a, a form of epistemicide there too. Uh, and, and then there is a fourth one, which is the burning alive of women in Europe accused of being witches. And so, uh, and, and there were, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands, you know, millions of women uh, that were killed burn alive because they were accused of being witches. And, and that's a form of genocide and epistemicide at the same time, because a lot of these women were indigenous women of this part of the world, you know, of Europe. And they were going after them because they, have, they, were, uh, they, have, they were sages, you know, they, they have knowledge uh, uh, from uh, previous civilizations in Europe and the power structure at the time did not uh, uh, did not, uh, were, were felt threatened by this uh, woman with all their knowledge and wisdom. And, uh, and so there, there you have 
uh, in these four genocide epistemicides, the patriarchal structures of the modern Christian world or modern Christian civilization, as well as the racial structures of domination that are constitutive of the modern world. Because this is the moment, 1450 to 1650, in these 200 years, these four genocides epistemic are happening at the same time, simultaneously. And so what happened then is that the knowledge structures of modernity are founded upon these genocide epistemicides. So by the time someone like René Descartes, who is considered the founder of modern European philosophy, say, I think therefore I am, or I think therefore I exist, uh, you have there already this I could not be, after these four genocide epistemicides, this I could not be a Muslim or a Jew after the conquest of Al-Andalus. This I could not be a, an indigenous person after the conquest of America. This I could not be an African uh, after the conquest of Africa and mass enslavement of Africans in the Americas. And this I could not be a woman, not even a woman of the five countries after the uh, you know, the burning alive of women in this part of the world accused of being witches. So, uh, so who is left? So when Descartes was writing now in the 1640s, who is left? Who is this I? This I in the common sense of the time, after this genocide epistemicide, it couldn't be any of these people I mentioned. It's, it's a Western white man. So this is what happened historically that gave the privilege of white men, not only in the economic and political structures of the world, but also in the knowledge structures of the world. And, and so this is what I found in my, in my research. So I'm going to take us to where we are now, which is 20, end of 2018, beginning of 2019. And it's a kind of a devil's advocate question, but I think it's one that a lot of listeners might be uh, struggling with. They'll be saying, okay, so we are living in a post second world war era where there is now a legal definition of genocide, which is a good thing, surely. So what is it that you're saying? How does that connect with how we understand genocide in a sort of social legal sense post the Second World War? How does it relate? Because if we actually look at the kind of conversations we're having post the Second World War, there is obviously a very big focus on the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust against primarily the Jews, but obviously also Roma, homosexuals, other ethnicities, uh, religions and actually we often forget the murder of so many Slavs as well and Russians by the Nazi regime. It's difficult sometimes to make a connection you know there's an idea that okay that's history we've now understood genocide and we're moving forward so maybe if you could address how those connect and, yeah. you know even if that means it's a critique of, of the legal lens that we're using but also secondly and just one of the things maybe you could address to the side of this is that with this memorialization of particularly the Holocaust, but other genocides as well, there is a huge argument raging about memorializing the what we call the transatlantic slave trade. But as people like yourself and Kwame Namaka say, well, nobody was enslaved. Nobody chose to be a slave. They were, in fact, kidnapped uh, and had heinous crimes committed against them. Why do you think there is a resistance uh, amongst institutions of the state to really recognize that on the same level, even if you're just talking particularly in terms of numbers, as, as the Holocaust. Okay, the, the first thing that we need to understand is that those genocide epistemics that I described 
uh, between these 200 years. They were happening at the same time and they were done by the same people. This is what is amazing. When you start looking at the connections between all these genocide epistemia, it's the same people, the same uh, uh, white Western elites, the ones exercising these four genocides uh, that I described at the same time. You know, so uh, at the same time, they were burning alive women in Europe. At the same time, they were enslaving Africans, you know, and at the same time, they were destroying and conquering Muslims and Jews in the south of Spain. At the same time, they were, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, going after indigenous people in the Americas and other parts of the world. So, so this is uh, something that is at the foundation of the civilization that was founded in this moment in history. What happened is that the European colonial expansion is not only an economic expansion, and this is where I have my discrepancies with the white left, that they only see this from the point of view of economics, like they will say they are conquering this land because they're just looking for cheap labor for a new system called capitalism. Well, that's partly true, but that's not enough because the problem is that this European current expansion was also destroying all the civilization they encountered and imposing this new civilization that we call today modernity that is founded upon genocide, epistemicide of all these civilizations. So <clears throat> by the early 20th century, there's no more civilizations outside this one because by the early 20th century with the fall of the Ottomans, now they have already conquered the whole world. That is the whole world is now within this civilization. So what happened is that we are now inside a global system that began way back in the 15th century with the European colonial expansion and uh, it went around the world conquering and destroying all the previous civilizations, imposing this one. So this one is already a civilization that is destructive of life, human life, because we're talking about millions of people killed. And millions of people killed in the process of conquering uh, Al-Andalus, in the process of conquering uh, Africa, in the process of conquering the Americas, in the process of conquering Asia, in the present, when you start looking around, they're killing millions of people over all this period, you know? So genocide is at the foundation of this civilization. And this is what gives the white man the superiority. It's not anything natural or genetics. It's about destroying other people's life and getting themselves the power to then uh, dominate the rest of the world. And this is the rise of the West is founded on these genocide epistemicides. So what I want to say is that by the 20th century, it's not as if we are a, a, in a different system. By the 20th century, we are now in the consolidation of the system that began with all this expansion to the, to, to the rest of the world. Why I say the cons consolidation? Because by the 20th century, they already conquered the whole world. Now it's one planetary civilization, which is this modernity, European-centric uh, world system that is capitalist, patriarchal, modern colonial, Christian-centric, uh, Western-centric world system. So it's a broad uh, package of power relations involved here. And, and then they created something uh, I've been calling inspiring, inspired in Franz Fanon and the uh, Caribbean philosophers of Fanonian philosophers, uh, son of being, son of non-being. 
So zone of being is the zone of the superior beings. In the zone of superior beings, the legal structures of the system apply more or less coherently. In the zone of non-being, the methods used by the system to manage conflict is violence and dispossession as a constant, not as an exception. And, and so these are two zones that are coexisting one next to the other. So what happens is that cause of law collapses in the zone of non-being because the cause of law that are applied to the people who are considered human beings, you know, even people oppressed inside the zone of being, receive legal rights, receive human rights, receive, uh, they, they get recognized their labor rights, women rights, all this code of law, even if you are a formal citizen of whatever country, if you happen to be in the zone of non-being, that is in those who are considered less than humans, dehumanized by these racist structures, then all those codes of law collapses. And so the way the system is going to treat you is through violence and dispossession. You can see this every day in the West, but outside the West. So that's why I say we're in a westernized system because it happens everywhere today after 500 years of European colonial expansion. So what happened then is that the laws that were then put forward after the Second World War for genocide and all of that is always uh, going to be in a perverse way instrumentalized by these Western powers. So they will call genocide certain things that are done or by their what they consider their enemies, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly, sometimes things that, that are not really genocide, that is something else that happened, they will call it genocide just to attack their enemies. And then the genocides of which they participate, they're complicit, etc., then those genocides are never discussed or never considered genocide. So this is a, a, a double standard that affects the way the law is going to be applied after Second World War. So, uh, for example, you have uh, all these laws against genocide, but then you have the genocides committed by the British in Africa and many parts of the world that we never discuss them and we never go around them, you know, or, or the complicity of the West in, in modern genocides, like in Rwanda, okay, or the complicity of the West like in Bosnia, you know, of more, you know, contemporary recent genocides. And we never discuss that these are like, uh, how can I say, uh, we never go into the details about the complicity of the West in this genocide. We always take whoever is the enemy of the West and accuse the enemy of the West of being the one who perpetrated this genocide and hide the participation of the West in these genocides, you know? Or look at what happened in Iraq uh, you know, more than a million civilians killed, you know, after the invasion of uh, the West there, you know, we never put in a trial Tony Blair or we never put in a trial George Bush, you know, as genocide. Uh, more than a million people killed there. Uh, still, all these uh, millions of people displaced. I mean, you go over, over different situations in the Middle East today and you can make an argument about crimes against humanity, for example, or genocide in some cases, and and against the leaders of the West, but that's never discussed. That's never put in a trial any leader of the West into these crimes. So we show you that zone of being, non-being. In the zone of being, people who come from that zone 
are always protected. People who come from the zone of non-being, the ones that are considered their enemies or the ones who are considered inferior, then the law applies perfectly to them. So this is a, a double standard that is embedded in the law. So as good as the law might sound in paper, you have a system that is founded on genocide, founded on racism, and therefore the law gets corrupted in the way it's applied because of these structures of inequality I've been describing. Just a small uh, aside, while you were talking at the end there, I just wondered whether you thought that applies to something like the International Criminal Court, because ultimately I think most, if not all, of the prosecutions and cases are against African leaders in the current time. So, absolutely. If you look around, it's always African leaders, and especially African leaders who happen to be considered by the West as enemies of them. You see, this is, the, this is what is interesting. And, and they never go into African leaders who happen to be, uh, you know, part, you know, the westernized elites they are uh, controlling, you see. Uh, they always go against enemies. So the law is used in a perverse way, double standard way, uh, instrumentalized by Western imperialism according to their interests and needs. And that's why the United Nations today has become a corrupted institution because uh, the United Nations basically is overlooking certain crimes that the West commit while sometimes exaggerating other behavior of other countries just because they are enemies of the West, sometimes even distorting reality and accusing uh, countries of committing crimes that they never committed, you know, and things like this. So, so it's, it's really a, a perverse institution that is not really serving humanity, but is serving Western powers. That's what is really happening. So this takes us to perhaps two quite key questions for people like ourselves, activists, academics, people who are genuinely and deeply concerned to remember what has happened, even if we're being fed a very kind of Eurocentric or kind of history-blind narrative about what genocide in the current era is. Really, how do we take what you've said forward? How do we, for example, challenge the institutions, whether it's the university, the westernized university, or uh, legal institutions, whether it's the International Criminal Court or, you know, any other kind of mechanism, in terms of, you know, incorporating what you've been talking about as an understanding of genocide to make the system work, if you like, in a transparent way for everybody that collapses these zones of being and non-being. Is there a way of doing that or do we need mm -hmm. something else? But secondly, and I think in a way more prescient for ourselves and the people who are listening, is how do we, as concerned individuals or groups and organisations, decolonize genocide memorialization? Because obviously we're living in an era now where there is a lot of focus, rightly so, on the crimes committed in the Second World War, particularly with regard to the Holocaust against Jewish communities. But, as I mentioned, there's also then a resistance to memorializing other types of genocide. How can we make this a coherent and transformative memorialization? Okay, the first thing we need to do is to decolonize the narratives. Uh, the narratives are hiding colonialism and the history of colonialism into the present structures that we're living. For example, uh, what is the link between the Holocaust and colonialism? We never talk about it. We always talk about the Holocaust as some, something exceptional that to modernity and to the West. 
And in fact, it's not. Uh, if you read the work of a black thinker from the Caribbean, MSSR, in his discourse on colonialism, he makes very clear how the link between the methods used by the Nazis in Second World War and the methods used by the West in colonialism. So he's basically saying that Nazism, what it, it means is uh, the methods, colonial methods, now coming back to haunt Europe. That is, colonial methods that were always used against Africans, indigenous people, uh, Asian people, now coming back to Europe, and now you have a white man, such as Hitler, doing it to other white men. And so, uh, to other white people in, in the territories of Europe. And so why, why he's uh, basically emphasizing is how Holocaust, if you really want to understand Holocaust, it's not an exception to modernity, it's not an exception to the West. It's exactly what the West have been doing all along to the coloni colonized people, but now coming back to home Europe and, and someone inside Europe now saying, I'm the superior race, you're the inferior race, and I'm going to colonize you. So this is what happened in Second World War. So that reading is very important so that we connect the logic of genocide of the in the case of the Holocaust with the history of colonialism because it's not exceptional. It's exactly what the West have been doing for uh, several hundred years in the rest of the world. So uh, what is important about Cesar's work it, is that it uh, put in conversation the Holocaust against Jews uh, and uh, Roma people and other people in Europe with the history of colonialism. Uh, in doing that, it's a, a crucial move because part of what happened is that by delinking the history of colonialism from the Holocaust and representing the Holocaust as something exceptional to the West, uh, then we get the impression of a never again that becomes very narrow. That is, the never again is never again against the Jews. That's what comes out of the Holocaust. Instead of being never again against a human being. This is a very different reading because if you link the Holocaust to one more genocide in the long list of genocides coming out of the European colonial expansion and now using colonial methods applied apply inside Europe, now against Jews and other groups, uh, then we make a connection between the Holocaust and zone of non-being, the dehumanization of human beings in European colonial history and European modernity. Once you make that connection, then the never again is never again a human being. That, that has a complete different reading and consequence than saying never again against Jews. Because when you say never again against Jews, you're giving now a, a blank check to, for example, Jews now claiming that they've been attacked or whatever. And now, because never again against Jews, now they can have the license to, to go to places like Palestine and practice genocide against other people because the never again is not never again against human beings. It's a never again against Jews. You, you follow me? And now Jews have the possibility of doing to other people what was done to them. And that's what's happening in Palestine today. You have a genocide happening there 
that is a continuity of colonial structural domination because there is a high correlation, for example, between settler colonialism and genocide. Because in settler colonialism, the colonizer is not interested in exploiting the labor of the colonized people. The most important thing of settler colonialism is that the colonizer is interested in taking away or dispossessing the uh, native people from the land, taking over the land, the resources, their properties, and settling there with their families. There is a high correlation there between this kind of colonialism and genocide because the colonizer is not interested in the human beings they find in front of them. What they are interested in is, is just any cleansing the territory to take over their land. And that's when you have them violent, uh, violence becoming genocidal because now it's about uh, killing the people you have in front of you. And part of the narrative use is, is the inferiority of these human beings. And they will say there were no humans living there before we arrived. This is what they, they were claiming in the Americas 500 years ago. And now they're claiming the same thing, uh, the, the, the Israelis, in relation to Palestine. You know, uh, so basically uh, you have these real correlations that have a long history in uh, the system, the global system we live today. And, uh, and the the consequence of decolonizing the Holocaust narrative is that we have to understand that it's not about never again against Jews only, but never again against any human being. And so if we take that line of thought, then we need to apply the principles of the anti-genocidal uh, a, a legal codes against anybody who committed. Doesn't matter who is the person committing committing the genocide. So look at how complex it is when you have someone like the Jews who were zone of not being in Europe, now going to Palestine to colonize the land there and people there, and now they're zone of being over there, and now they're doing to other people what was done to them. Now you have Palestinians in the zone of not being. So look at how this structure of zone of being, non-being, hyperhumanization of some human beings, dehumanization of others, becoming constitutive of the way the anti-genocidal laws are applied. So they're applied with double standards, where it applies to certain groups, but not to others. This is corrupt, completely corrupt. So this is the importance of decolonizing uh, the legal structures. You know, to decolonize the legal structure, you need to decolonize history and decolonize knowledge. It's all linked. And decolonize the power structures. So, zone of being, non-being is going to continue while we have the system we have. Unless we transform the system and transform the structure of the system, we will have repetition of zone of being, non-being, and we will have new genocides coming forward, you know, because it's inherent at the foundation of this civilization, this global system, genocide. And you know, the moment you put people in zone of not being, then they're animals. They're not human beings, and therefore cause of genocide, you know, cause of law about genocide, don't apply to the victims because they're not human beings, you know? They're just animals, you know? So this is the kind of thing that makes uh, corruption inherent to, to the system we live. So. And then the other thing is, how do we decolonize this thing? Well, we need to bring epistemic diversity to the knowledge structures 
of uh, universities as well as uh, other spaces of knowledge production, including the legal law. We need to bring other perspectives that are being inferiorized through epistemic racism in uh, uh, universities and let's say United Nations, for example, when they're trying to produce laws or apply laws, they they just uh, take white men knowledge as the superior knowledge and inferiorize everybody else. So if you don't read MSSL, for example, it's a black man in the Caribbean writing about this, uh, you don't get the insights that you need to really, really decolonize the legal structure of the UN about genocide from this kind of double standards, you know? And you could see that Israelis are killing everyday Palestinians. Uh, there is an ethnic cleansing that is happening in our eyes today, every single day, and you don't see a single law coming out of the United Nations be applied to Israelis. Why? Because they're protected by the West. Uh, the Israeli colonial settled project there is entangled with the Western imperialist powers because they have become like the police of the Middle East and they play a role in Western imperial domination of the region, you know? So this is uh, very obvious, but nobody dares to put the dots together, partly because we are uh, using Eurocentric knowledge to understand the world. We need to bring epistemic diversity that is other critical voices from other parts of the world who are taking a different look at these things and are giving us insights that Western men cannot give us. So this is why I think that a central issue of decolonizing universities and knowledge structure is to bring epistemic diversity into the conversation, whatever we are looking at. On that point, to connect with your call for epistemic diversity, and actually what you were talking about, this kind of socialization of the idea of the what was previously the dehumanized Jew into becoming part of the sort of, if you like, white community of settler colonialism post the Second World War. I was thinking of uh, writers, sort of some of them were Jewish liberation theologists like Mark Ellis or perhaps Santiago Slavosky, I can't pronounce the name properly, my apologies, uh, and many other writers, maybe Ellis Shohat, who will say, well, actually what you're talking about is a theory which is Zionism and we are somehow distinct from that that's not the universal Jewish experience or thinking there are liberation theologies there are other ways of understanding when you're talking about epistemic diversity do you mean that perhaps on the organizational level or individual level we need to be looking at those voices rather than uh, if you like just accepting the the institutional narratives yeah Zionism is racist and it's colonial colonial because the Zionist project from the beginning was a Western-centric expansion, you know, claim, you know, to expansion to uh, Palestine. Okay, from the beginning, they were, you know, basically it's a it's a colonial project where the British were central actors in producing this uh, colonial structure in Palestine. Uh, we know the Balfour Declaration and the policies of the British Empire in that part of the world after the fall of the Ottomans. And they basically took the, the territory and then promoted a settler colonial project of Jews over Palestinians in that, in that territory. So the British are super involved and responsible to, to the, what we're seeing today, okay? Uh, 
so basically zionism is is a very particular place not it's not we need to decolonize it also from certain perspectives that try to look at zionism as some kind of emancipatory jewish project in fact it's not jewish the the, the most important forces promoting zionism are christians christian fundamentalists from the u.s or a Western imperial powers who happen to be Christians, the ones promoting Zionism. And then, of course, certain groups within the Jewish community are Zionists. And you have also Muslim Zionists. Uh, and, and so Zionism is not tied to an identity or religion, even though the, uh, the project pretends to be a so-called Jewish project. In fact, there are many Jews I would say the majority of Jews in the world do not share this idea of Zionism. Uh, there, there are many Jews who are critical of this project because it has nothing to do with their spirituality, it has nothing to do with their history, it has nothing to do with anything. It's an invention that was done recently as part of a British colonial expansion to that part of the world and uh, using Jews, you know, to colonize Palestinian lands. And, and, and so they invented narrative of history. They invented uh, uh, even uh, narrative, religious narratives to justify something that is unjustifiable. And so this is uh, where we need to hear also the critical voices of the Jewish uh, thinkers who are also critical Zionism, are voices that are buried somewhere there because they're not taken seriously, uh, partly because they're highly critical of the Zionist project. They're anti-Zionist. So the names you just mentioned, Santiago Slavowski, Ella Shohatz, and Mark Ellis and others, uh, it's a long list of Jews, Jewish intellectuals who have completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, distanced themselves from this genocidal colonial racist project that we call Zionism and the Israeli states who happen to be a terrorist state, okay, uh, that produced terrorism all over the Middle East and produced not only uh, terrorism in terms of against Palestinians, but also they're the ones financing a lot of what uh, you know, uh, we know today as the Tafsik Fetis, you know, in, in most part of uh, the wars happening in the Middle East, you know, so, and this is not a secret. If you go to Israel, they talk about it overtly. I mean, it's a secret for the West because in the West, the press hides this. But in the press of Israel, it's overtly stated how, and they justify that they are supporting these terrorist groups. And it's, it's not hiding it to their own population. That's written in Hebrew. In English, you you barely hear anything about these things, you know. Uh, but, you know, the point is that uh, part of epistemic diversity is also listening to uh, critical Jewish voices in relation to Zionism. So to criticize Israel or to criticize Zionism is not to be anti-Semitic. This, this is the blackmail that is used today. Since when criticizing a state structure makes you anti the population that live inside that state. Since when criticizing the Mexican state makes you anti-Mexican? Since when criticizing the British state makes you anti-British? This is the blackmail they're using. Criticizing Israeli state makes you anti-Semite. Since when? Israeli state one thing, Jewish people is another. And these are they're, they're collapsing the two to blackmail people and to also criminalize the resistance against this genocidal colonial racist structure that is the Zionist state. 
And so uh, if you happen to criticize them, then they accuse you of being anti-Semite and then they criminalize you. And this is a, a really problematic uh, assumption because uh, the, what the, the real criminals, which is the Israeli state that is practicing genocide, that is uh, practicing crimes against humanity in, in a lot of parts of the Middle East today, uh, they're the ones going away as the, the victims. You know, and the, this is this coming from this colonial narrative of the whole, about the Holocaust, because the colonial narrative of the, about the Holocaust is basically saying, not again, never again against Jews, and then you give the Jews now a license to do whatever to defend themselves in the name of never again against Jews, and here is where the whole thing gets corrupted, because that that it, that lesson should not be a, such a narrow lesson. The lesson should be never again against a human being. But in order to be able to say that about the Holocaust, you need to link the Holocaust to the long list of genocides of the West in colonial history. Because the Holocaust is just a, a, the result of that long history of genocide against uh, people around the world, including Jews inside Europe. So just to conclude, uh, obviously, I highly recommend and we highly recommend that people listening go away and read more of your work. There are a lot of links on our website, particularly on the Genocide Memorial Day resource page. But maybe you could suggest uh, some key works of yours, but also of other writers, whether it's talking about the Holocaust or uh, slavery or any other aspect of what we've been discussing now. Uh, who would you recommend people go away and, and really look at in terms of trying to decolonize the way they think? I would say that concepts such as epistemic racism, you know, is central. Concepts such as uh, the, you know, coloniality of power or coloniality of knowledge, because the word coloniality uh, helps us to think about how colonial relations continue alive today, despite the fact that colonial administration has been uh, eradicated in most of the world. So the world is still colonial. One of the myths of the 20th century is to believe that because colonial administration has been eradicated in most of the world, with the exception of places like Palestine or Puerto Rico, where I'm coming from, uh, that then colonialism is over and colonial relations are over. Well, it's not. As by the way, colonial structures of knowledge production, colonial structures of power, colonial structures of being are still alive with us. And even though colonial mysteries are not there anymore, because they have been internalized in the institutions structures, knowledge, uh, our ways of being, living, thinking, are still pretty much a result of a long colonial history. And we haven't decolonized that. We're still in a colonial world. This is where there are movements today, such as Rose Must Fall and so on, you know, in South Africa, in Britain and other places, calling for the decolonization of universities, for example. You know, uh, because the knowledge structures are still pretty much racist colonial structures. We haven't overcome that, despite the fact that colonial administrations has been eradicated from most of the world today. So this is one of the things I want to call attention to. The myth of 20th century that colonial colonialism and colonial relations are over because colonial administrations are over is, is a... It's a myth that is uh, not helping us to move forward because we're still pretty much in a colonial world. 
Roman Grossfrio, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. This conversation is part of a series of podcasts for the Genocide Memorial Day project. You can find more of these on our website, www.genocidememorialday.org.uk, or you can go via the Islamic Human Rights Commission website, which is www.ihrc.org. Thank you.